before we get to today's show, I want to give some quick shout-outs. First of all, Rick Pastor, thank you so much for painting up my Angelique model. This came from Rise 3D when I was at Wonderfest. I met Rick, and he told me, hey, they have an Angelique model kit at this booth here at Wonderfest. So we went over, and it was the, the Night of Dark Shadows, Angelique. It's like a 3D-printed uh, model kit company, and they do short, small runs of different characters and things and they had an Angelique one so I picked it up and uh, the company by the way is Rise 3D Printing and I'll put a link in the show notes to this Angelique model because they still have it on their website and you can uh, order it through the mail and Rick also got one for himself and he is a master at building these model kits and painting them. I on the other hand am not good at all uh, when it comes to that. Sadly, uh, I, I do not have the Aurora model kit skills that many of my friends have. Alas, I wish I had those skills, but Rick certainly does, and in spades, and he was kind enough to offer to paint the Angelique model for me and his. He painted them side by side and would send me update pictures, and he did an incredible job. And if you're watching the YouTube version of this, you can check out the pictures of the painted Angelique model. Rick is extremely talented. As you can see, he even added some little branches. He made a Knight of Dark Shadows sign, which is really cool, some moss. And then he also sent me some pictures of other Dark Shadows models that he's built and customized as well, like the Old Man Barnabas model kit. So thank you again, Rick. You are a genius, and I really appreciate this. So thank you for doing this for me. I also received this amazing book from a former podcast guest, Ricardo Delgado. When he was on the podcast, we talked a little bit about his book, Dracula of Transylvania, and he has a new book out, The Art of Dracula of Transylvania, which is absolutely gorgeous, and he was kind enough to send me a copy of the book from Clover Press. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get The Art of Dracula of Transylvania. It's an absolutely gorgeous hardcover book with Ricardo's brilliant artwork. All these brilliant genius artistic people. I wish I had these kinds of skills. Uh, luckily, people like Ricardo and Rick do, so check out Dracula of Transylvania and Art of Dracula of Transylvania. And last but not least, I want to thank all of you who have so kindly and thoughtfully supported the podcast through your donations, through Buy Me a Coffee, uh, and through PayPal as well. Uh, I just want to give a couple of uh, quick shout-outs to, to some of those folks. Scott, Gay, David, Don, Avakia, Mark, Joni, Frank, Brenda, James, and Devlin and Associates, <laughs> which I love. You know who you are, Devlin and Associates. Thank you, Burke. Thanks for the uh, donation there, Mr. Devlin. You acquired quite a fortune after you got out of prison, so thanks for, for sharing some of the wealth there. Uh, but I, I really do appreciate uh, all of you who have shown your kindness and your support for the podcast uh, through your donations. Last time, I guess I said last names last time. Apparently, that's not a, that's not kosher. You're not supposed to do that. So, sorry, I don't know. I just So this time, I'm using first names only, and going forward, whenever I do these shout-outs, it will be first-name basis only, unless you specify otherwise that you want me to say your last name. Anyway, without further ado, Let's get to today's episode.
tinge of fear and tears that glisten. There are spoilers here for those who listen. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful, and I am joined by two excellent guests today. Returning to the podcast is the delightful Patrick McRae, author of the Dark Shadows Daybook and the Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound. And joining me for the first time is Mary D. Johnson, who is the reader for the audio version of the Dark Shadows Daybook and the brand new audio version of the Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound, which clocks in at 11 hours and 29 minutes. So I'm really excited uh, to hear from both of you today. Uh, and Mary, who has not been here before, I look forward to hearing about her experience. Uh, we already did uh, an episode covering Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound in episode 48. But with this new audio version, uh, Patrick had suggested the idea of bringing Mary on to talk about her her experiences as someone who had actually not watched Dark Shadows before recording this. So I'm really excited. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. It's always Thank great you. to be here. <laughs> you you have the record for the most episodes. Of I am Harvard. the Buck. Hen I'm the Buck Henry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your Buck Henry. I I love that you're the Buck Henry. I'm going to introduce you that way from now on. Whenever right, please be Buck Henry of Tara Gullenwood. Um. So, um, Patrick, let me ask you first. Um, how did you, um, when you were looking for a reader for this book, doing the audio version of this? First of all, how did you? come to the decision to do an audio version of the book and how did you find Mary and why was she the right choice for this? I started looking for Mary in the late 1990s, I think. Um, <laughs> I, Mary, when did we meet? We met, I think the turn of the century. Um, it just was. Around, just around then. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. It so was. you've known each other for a while then. We have. Yeah, she, she busted up a bar fight that I was in. How old were you? Oh gosh, you know, like let's eight. see. Yeah, some, something like that. Uh, you know, just, just tall enough to reach the bar. She was about eight. And, uh, and I, was, uh, I was doing these drama camps so I could buy a DVD player. True story. <laughs> I like worked all summer for a D. That's how much they cost and how mm -hmm. little it made. And, uh, and, and Mary was in, uh, was in my camps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she, was, uh, she was just fantastic. And she was so, she was so good. In in a in a completely modest and pleasant way, she was so good that the last I think two or three years, I dropped the whole pretense of doing these conducted stories and doing um, little final plays based on those. I just started writing vehicles for Mary, as <laughs> as this sort of uh, occasional but occasionally reformed Bond villain, uh, Doctor Vesuvius Odd Puppet. Mm -hmm. and uh and who would like launch cooties bombs but then she gets reformed at one point and uh and and goes into space and it's just it, it they were uh there was art in the theater mm -hmm. i in some ways i think those were the, those were the first and last good shows i ever did uh that's compared to those sweeney todd doesn't touch it <laughs> uh who's afraid of virginia wolf who cares <laughs> that's where dr odd puppets where it's at and uh and it was it and so then uh then in high school uh she was hilarious and and she she was in sort of this live action interactive 
uh, exploitation film murder mystery that I did where we created this character named Jacqueline Garrett mm -hmm. around her, who was uh, this fantastic kind of uh, something out of a Jack Hill movie. And you watch Jack Hill movies, I think, as preparation. Hey. And the immortal line, what's this, a pickle? Uh, <laughs> echoed, echoed through the, the rehearsal halls. And then and then I wound up playing Head of Gobbler, you know, for laughs, as always, mm -hmm. as one does. And uh, and then went off to college. But uh, one of the shows we did was Drowsy Chaperone. It was a very funny show. Very, very, very funny show. And um, I, I did it again this this past uh, fall and uh, mary came into town to see it mm -hmm. and i had been looking for uh, uh an audiobook reader i had i had had several kind of close encounters and in, in your misses and, and there were always some sort of technical disaster or something like that because the i dictate the day books i i don't really type much i'm you know like one of those Keenan Wynn characters from the twilight zone and you know and so i i dictate everything and um which explains some of the syntax. Uh, and so it's always meant to be, to be spoken. And I, I kept having friends say, you know, Patrick, you, you got to read it. You, you really do it right. You do, you do this. And I was saying, well, okay. But even when I would try to do it, I would freeze up or I'd go too slowly or too quickly, or I was just really in my head about it. And, um, and I was, uh, I was sort of singing the blues about this after, um, a production performance of Drowsy Chaperone that Mary came in to see. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it was at that point that I was informed that she uh, she was a she was a reader. And I had always, 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 if I weren't going to do it, I wanted a female reader. Uh, I wanted an ironic uh, a, a woman's voice. Um, I just felt that synergy had it wasn't it was an it was almost an alchemy i just thought there's a there's a proper proper fusion of uh of sensibilities that 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 would be great with it and i always heard it in in uh in a woman's voice and in a fairly uh energetic woman's voice um and uh and when Mary uh, said that she was she was in the biz and had had everything uh, ready to go with it, it just was magically correct. It was it was absolutely what was meant to be, uh, in the in the immortal words of uh, poet laureate Bibi Rexham. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> great, and and Mary. So I have mm -hmm. to ask. So what was it like having uh, Patrick as a director? <laughs> well, I think. Um... <laughs> I would I would say for better. I think he would say for better or for worse, certainly formative. And I think, um, you know, I, I like to look back on my journey through these roles as a young person, you know, really embracing the I remember writing bios and saying that, you know, my my titular journey had gone from Dr. Odd Puppet to the drowsy chaperone to head of Galbo. And I was like, and what an arc is that? And as you said, Patrick, you know, you get, you can't, you can't get much better than Dr. Vesuvius Odd Puppet. I mean, um, <laughs> that's, it'll be forever the jewel in, in any young performer or, you know, performer of any age and in their, in their crown. Um, I, and I said this and I was trying to look it up um, verbatim, but I remember the spirit of what I said after finishing the first day book, um, which was, you know, the greatest gift I think I was, I was given as a young person was how to 
I and I hope we can say freely on the podcast space um, how to take things seriously, but not too seriously. So to give a shit and have fun at the yes. same time. Right. Um, and that is a cocktail that is not easy to brew, um, especially by a, by a teacher, by a director. Um, and that is what the day books are all about. It's and I knew from the second that I started reading and I was like, oh, this voice is a voice that is one of the voices who, you know, again, I would say for better, <laughs> made, made me who I am. And and it's so in just, you know, in the same way that I learned piano by ear, I learned Macravia by ear. Uh, <laughs> Macravia, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that it it just felt so natural to and I and I would say this, it, I had to stop myself from yeah, kind of talking like this now, you know, put a little <laughs> in my voice. Um <laughs> I love it. Keep my voice. Just to, you know, keep the cadence without the, um, but, uh, <laughs> so anyway, the long and the short of it was, um, he was an incredibly influential and, and positive force for weird in my life, um, as, as a kid. And it has been an incredible gift to be right back hearing his voice and learning from him in a new space and learning all about dark shadows, which, um, we will get into, I'm sure I knew nothing about and still, yeah have the blessing of only knowing it through the eyes of Patrick McRae. So. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated as to what the series is for you mm -hmm. in that, because you, yes, you have gone all the way through the show, mm -hmm. but you've gone through it sort of uh, like, like a character out of Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> you know, here's these yeah. things, these novels yeah. dictated or whatever. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I just got to say, as this goes on, I'm fascinated mm -hmm. to hear what Dark Shadows is mm -hmm. through that, through that lens. And, and that is, that was uh, actually uh, my next couple of questions here were uh, mm -hmm. to ask, you about the fact that you had never watched dark shadows before mm -hmm. i assume you were, were you aware of it its existence only very very vaguely it had only kind of crossed my periphery uh -huh. um but i you know the name barnabas collins i knew mm -hmm. um and and but but more than that really really not much i mean i yeah. would say maybe what I would compare it to. I mean, I, I imagined and going back to, you know, as I, I don't know why you probably read between lines. I too um, am from the South and spent a lot of time in Tennessee. Um, and I would reckon there are a lot of church going folks who have never read the Bible, but know a whole lot about this story of <laughs> story of, you know, the various characters, you know, that, that whole cast of cast of 12 and co um, as told by, you know, various folks on the pulpit. So I kind of think that I have followed in the footsteps Steps. I love um, it. <laughs> Interesting. And, and, and looking at Dark Shadows mm -hmm. through the lens of McCray. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Patrick. Oh, I was just feeling the spirit. Oh, oh I thought you're right. He's a hearing people say uh, amen. Uh, <laughs> um, looking know. at Dark Shadows through the lens of McCray. Uh, mm -hmm. So what, what are what are some of your takeaways? Like, what is your, I guess, your perception of what Dark Shadows is having read all of that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the immense body of work that Patrick created. Um, what is your, what are your, some of your takeaways? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that one one takeaway, and I don't know if you would um, expect me to go here, but it's top of mind, is is really also not being someone who was much in the daytime, didn't have a lot of awareness of daytime television and what that looked like and how it came together and had not just watched or seen or known a lot about it, and really appreciating how the form that Dark Shadows was in and just the sheer volume and what the writer's room looked like and the years and sort of the audience, how that really affected how the content came together and I think that um the 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 real benefit of learning about dark shadows through the McCravian lens is that these themes and to be able whether it's to have uh the story of dark shadows kind of taken apart and put back together chronologically which again I am getting the benefit that so many viewers certainly viewers in past did not get to have um which is to really be able to and, and I think he does such a great job of this to say there are these themes and there are these these really meaningful and impactful arcs, you know, whether it's about loss of innocence or whether it's about love and how and forgiveness and redemption and and how, you know, a, a, a quest for love can sustain and destroy and um, and all of those really, you know, important and, and poignant and, you know, sort of make the earth go round themes, how those exist and can be tangled apart or teased apart. But at the end of the day, you had to keep you had to keep people coming home from school and <laughs> and engaged and through all seasons and just that we do not forget what the medium is and I think for me and anyway, it's a long long winded way to say no that's um, okay please stop it's yeah I appreciated what what can be done basically that you can have these themes and you can also have a lot of fun and it's important because it's important to have fun and it's important to keep characters coming up that audiences will love um and how many things can be done at once is what is what i have learned um and uh also i've fallen in love with a man named count patofi and <laughs> yes God, I ever haven't seen him. so as have we all <laughs> without even having seen him amazing you mm -hmm. you did you did your job very well mm -hmm. there, uh, Patrick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> awesome. What was it about Count Patofi? What, oh, what... I go. We got to hand it to him, right? Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who said it? Um, no, I think he's a good example of again a character who would have kept me racing home from school as so many did, um, and just completely, you know, from what I can tell, you know, screwball, wacky, off the walls. But you have this at the same time that you have, you know, poor, poor Barnabas, just, just trying, just really. He's really just trying. trying to get through the day. And suddenly, have you even seen a picture of Count Potofi? No. You gotta oh, go, really? Wow. You got to go live right now. I want to okay. see your reaction. Okay. 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 So okay. reading the reading all of these. Trust entries, me. Did, Trust yes, me. you do. You should. Yes. You wow. Should. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is definitely a wow. striking image to behold. Oh my God! Well, he's That's certainly a man. Got, he's got That's the chops. A man. He's, and the hair. And the hair. And the little glasses. <laughs> the glasses. Wow. wow. Yeah, I, I, I know. Heard, I've heard that Thayer David was very uh, involved in uh, decide helping to decide what his characters would look like during the show. Like he'd have input. So I, I bet he had. Why some did he had to drink that night? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I've got an idea. It's he's uh my uh a friend Ivan, who had been familiar with Dark Shadows but hadn't watched it before, he he had started watching it 
after he you know listened to some of the podcasts he started watching it and for halloween two years ago he sent me a picture he dressed up as Calpatofi. it's a great picture of him dressed as Calpatofi. he even bought a fake hand and he just had just not watched it for that long but he got he got sucked in by count Potofi. uh i ask Aristide. <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> episode 834 when count Potofi appropriates charles's studio for a clandestine rendezvous with edward charles is puzzled to learn that a beautiful portrait of amanda harris might ruin the mood Potofi, thayer david repeat 30 minutes Charles Tate discovers the secret of his own power, and Potofi monopolizes his home to meet Edward and expose his knowledge of Barnabas as the vampire. Barnabas ventures forward in time, via the I Ching, to interview Quentin's ghost about how he died. Nothing defines swagger like Jonathan Frid, Thayer David, Grayson Hall, and Louis Edmonds. And 834's I Ching Wands glisten with a palpable mist of their testosterone. I have no idea how a show like this, with an episode like this, could be called a soap opera. A supernatural drama is more like it. Or maybe just Dark Shadows. Because at this point, it defines itself. The swagger begins, though, with Roger Davis. And a bit before. The writer's swagger having established Charles Delaware Tate as the most powerful being in the universe. I would say more powerful even than Potofi. If the Count were that powerful, he would have given the abilities to himself. Tate is the perfect man for the job, however, because he is one of the people in the Dark Shadows universe least likely to want it. If Potofi has to choose a vessel for the power, let it be Tate. Roger Davis responds to the task with his most cerebral performance on the show, most Davis characters are situational pugilists, dealing with the very direct conflicts with high stakes and little time. Tate, however, is a man saddled with the ultimate existential realization of his chosen profession, art. It's safe to live by manifesting imagination, if that manifestation is only two-dimensional. But the responsibility that he realizes here is beyond the infinite. Can he change a math equation? Would that make buildings rise or fall? Can he change the shape of a continent or eliminate the stars with a splash of black paint? Is he experiencing the ultimate liberation of an artist or the ultimate prohibition? Roger Davis captures this complexity with the deliberate economy of a go-master. No small feat. Potofi, of course, is living swagger, forging names and appropriating art studios to trap Edward. Edward returns the swag by both embracing and dismissing bohemianism, and then staying, even after he realizes it's a trap. It's the perfect embodiment of mechanized Victorian thinking and propriety. When his worst enemy, Count Potofi, drops a dime on Barnabas, Edward should suspect that something is up. But Edward thinks like a reptile, with only a few up and down switches that give him very limited modes of very binary thinking. That only enhances his confrontation with the former Fen Gibbon, because Potofi is nothing but operational contradictions. Best of all in this is Barnabas, because he doesn't have the power cosmic. He's not the living embodiment of Victorian ideology. Early in the episode, he realizes that he must figure out how Quentin is going to die, and how to stop it. 
Frid's own actor's terror here comes to the rescue, as always. It gives him a marvelously petrified millisecond of indecisive horror. Unlike any other TV hero of the era, he's not a master detective. Barnabas Collins is largely the master of finding himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, making him more akin to the heroes of Easy Rider and Little Big Man than Mannix. Nevertheless, he must summon the inner Mannix and solve the problem in the most ludicrous way possible by projecting his soul temporarily through time to his awaiting body so that he can chat with a lethal ghost who never talked, get him to discuss his own death, and then return to 1897 with the news. It's ridiculous anti-thinking, tantamount to solving a Rubik's Cube by switching around the stickers. It smacks of desperation. It works. Desperation births a strange willpower, and Barnabas may not be a master detective, but he's no slouch at risking everything on insane ventures. It's one of the benefits of being a living corpse who suffered every conceivable tragedy. The schemes he executes, especially in this era, work because of sheer chutzpah and the bravery one can only achieve through abject terror. At this point, the audience isn't tuning in to feel afraid, but rather to see what someone else can do when fear is all they know. And fear for the right reasons. This episode hit the airwaves September 4th, 1969. Did you mm-hmm. have any interest in like pop culture in general, like uh, either horror or fantasy, sci-fi, or any kind of that kind of thing, or any type of pop culture that you're a fan of? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I would say... If I were to get into the horror genre, I think this era really is the way for me to do okay. it. Mm-hmm. Um, just in that, I I I think that, um, and this is you know again having having not seen it, but from what I just the the telling that I've gotten of it, um, that media from this, and this is going back to what um, Patrick mentioned with my Jack Hill time when you know you really like I, I'm remembering this back from. I think it was a bit of like director's trivia where he talked about how she, he would, you know, shoot on location for those, um, the Pam Greer movies and, you know, really just, mm-hmm. just the absolute bottom of the barrel, you know, wherever and not LA, but LA adjacent. And he said, you know, look for the ceilings because it's not sets, you know, I and mean, you can really like see the corner of the, the room into the ceiling. And I think that kind of see the ceiling sensibility, um, it feels a, a, a bit alive here. Like I, I'm thinking about, passages in the day book where we talk about lighting kind of you know where there were only only so much you could do given the budget and the medium um and I'm glad that because I you know I had you know certainly kind of seen the hits when it came to horror um but you know in the pop culture space it it was would have been unusual for me to pursue this just because I also don't tend to watch a lot in a short amount of time um I try to I try to dose it out I you don't do the binge thing then yeah I don't, do the, I don't do the binge thing and I think you know this the binge thing clearly is how is the reason for the season when it comes <laughs> to the day books um and I can see I can see why and how um so yeah I mean I I would say you know coming from someone who has a, a real interest in sort of the the that era you know getting into 70s 80s that that period um this this would be the ideal entry point and I'm glad to have yeah to have had. 
Yeah. Um, when you, how did, what was your process like for recording this? Like, I mean, it's so, it's a, a lot of material. It's a, you know, like I said, at the top of the show, it's 11 hours and 29 minutes for the day book unbound. Like, mm-hmm. did, how did you kind of parcel that out to, re, to do it? Yeah, I, uh, and the, the beauty of it as readers and listeners will come to find is that it is, it is absolutely fruitcake like in its nuttiness and density and <laughs> in the best possible way, but, but even, even more digestible, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, when it comes to, you know, one-offs and references and sort of excursions, I mean, these, these pieces, and also that helped me find so many entry points into it because, yeah. you know, I may not have all of the, the sort of Barnabas trivia. My fingertips but like I you know the odd Austin Powers reference maybe or you know various sort of bits of pop culture through the ages are woven in so expertly um that it it became very readable but it also required some advanced legwork in terms of okay like it's Kachaturian and I was going to say did you do research before (laughs) yeah okay I kind of look ahead on that website what was it that that website what was it this is a good one yes it is youglish.com so that's Y-O-U-G-L-I-S-H.com. Um, and if you put in, like you could even put in Potofi. I mean, it can be proper nouns, whatever it is. Um, and that, and it will scrub YouTube, all of the YouTube transcripts it has available and find different instances of that word being said. And so that was, wow. that came in handy. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big um, asset to me as I did sort of my initial read through. And then I would kind of identify what I needed to queue up and hear and get you a nailed all of that stuff though. I mean, you mm-hmm. really did. Did you have yeah. to, did you uh, communicate with each other, like giving feedback, Patrick to I, I just said what I liked. Mm-hmm. He did. Well, he's, and he, and he did. And he um, also, you know, especially given that he really did have, of course, an ear for what these would sound like. And and because the way that they're structured, I mean, they are meant to be said and they have that feeling to them. And there is a real, also, as we get into the pieces that are in the epilogue and, and different pieces have very different tones, as readers and listeners will know that some are just wild romps, others are more sort of melancholy and pensive. And for the most part, I, I anyway, knowing him as well as I I do I could I could suss out which would be what but that was another important part of reading it through it was sort of the pronunciation side and then the tone and the feel side of it um and and I I have to say no Patrick you're very judicious in in your direction an excellent director as as always and would just give some guidance where it was needed and uh primarily just give you know the odd pronunciation um, you know, note that would, that would have fallen through my cracks, but, uh, as it were, whoa, <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> but anyway, so that, that was pretty much, pretty much the long, the short of it. So read through, um, get it, you know, read through a few times off the mic and then just try to get into it mm-hmm. on the mic and, um, and try to do it in one take, uh, which, you know, I could typically, the pieces are, you know, they're, um concise enough that that was possible and you know if I flubbed cut those out but that was that was mainly the process did you do your own editing uh, after I, the fact on it I did my the first go so of I tried to deliver clean takes of each of each uh piece but it got a final polish mm-hmm. um and it was mixed and mastered per per requirements um had a great great fella 
who got the, to, the yeah. scintillating and curvaceous John Hudgens, mm -hmm. uh, who mm -hmm. made American Scary. I don't know if you. Yes, I, I yes, yes, I do. Yeah, and Sandy Clark, okay. along with Sandy yeah, Clark. Yeah, and yeah. I have no idea what the story is behind I, that. Yeah, but I miss. I'm in American Scary briefly. Blink. They use a couple of uh, clips, Penny Dreadful clips, in that they were in post. It's a for those who haven't seen it. It's a great documentary about horror hosts, the history of horror hosts. And they were in post-production when we launched our show. Uh, uh, and this was, I guess, late 2005, maybe. And Sandy Clark asked, he said, oh, can you send me some clips? So we sent, I sent and Sandy a couple of clips and they actually used them. They dropped them in, but it was too late to do the interviews. But then when they screened it at uh, Coney Island, at the Coney Island freak show, <laughs> where they, they, screen, they had a screening of it. So they invited me down. For that uh appropriately enough so i was uh penny dreadful at uh at that event and uh, they did like a little q a after the screening and stuff at the little theater there so that was really that was really fun that was a cool experience but it's a great documentary but so so uh so he was I, the one who did the yeah. editing on the day i didn't know that john is a john is a friend of mine and mm -hmm. uh and he is a he is a genuinely uh wonderful guy He's a real right. mensch and he is incredibly hardworking and um, has a really wonderful sense of taste. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, John, uh, John, John sort of did this as a, as a, as a, just as to be a mensch. That's awesome. And, yeah. Yeah. And I had acted for John before John and I met in a production of heartbreak house that we were in. And, um, and John, uh, John used me in a production of a movie he made called Sith Apprentice. Oh, cool. <laughs> I love it. got the Lucasfilm fan film favorite award <laughs> for 2005. It was the year that the, the one with Darth Vader in the mask. Yeah. Happened, that I thing. think, I think they're doing an actual show about that, the Sith apprentice for disney plus i think they really are doing a show i don't remember i what haven't it's been called. contacted to i don't remember what it's my, called yeah you go yeah get, get my role is Patrick. count dooku yeah, yeah. But i got a good review from film threat nice uh for my uh for my dooku kachu for my uh <laughs> my uh, my christopher lee impression and um and and then when john uh when i i tried to record it at one point uh, with a marvelous actress named Tiffany Talent, mm -hmm. and she was fantastic, and she was able to come into town, and she recorded a bunch, and the recordings got corrupted, the uh, cards got messed up that it was on, and so that like yeah. was like a year, year and a half of mourning and trying uh -huh. to figure that out before Mary came along, and yeah. Tiffany lives in another state, and so you know, gotcha. mm, yeah, I don't. Uh, and so then, but John had helped with the recording of that. Cool. And so he wanted to be in on this. Groovy. So um, after recording all of these entries for the both day books, uh, did it make you curious to go check out any of the episodes or would you rather just experience Dark Shadows in this way? Like what are your feelings about that? I think I'll have to. No, I, I do. I really do. I think I think try as I might. Um, you know, I've I've stayed sort of, you know, pure for long enough and 
it's time for me to get in there. And I think, you know, the real joy would be to then go back. I don't know if I'll listen to myself, but I think um, go back and read those selections because even between the day book and then the day book unbound, you know, I, I would recall these familiar arcs just from having read about them. I was like, oh, okay, here we are. Here we are back again, parallel time. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I think, uh, I think I, I will need to see it for myself. Um, and, uh, and I'll have to report back once I I do. would love to see that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, seriously, you're, it, given all of the weird parts of pop culture and 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 gender and everything else that Dark Shadows has going on, it's just mm-hmm. this. It really is a, a kind of a, a post-Freudian nightmare of <laughs> uh, of 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 delight. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just want to see how you respond to it. I, I have mm-hmm. a question to ask. Did did the two, did did Unbound feel like a a continuation of the day book or did it feel like it had a different identity to it i'm just sort of curious is the first sort of reader that this had mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i would say that unbound and i i do think that they are wonderful to be enjoyed together because i think you know unbound to me had the feeling of uh a, a sort of a 201 you know to the to the 101 one in a way i mean i think that it, to me it had this the the re, one of the, the big points of view is sort of this deconstruction reconstruction approach um in terms of really going at it chronologically and i think that alone having had the sort of the, the day book also i think feels like this sort of delightful you know mulligatawny stew of a little bit of everything a little bit of this a little bit of that angle and you and it's very comprehensive in that way um but unbound I think does does hold together and does also go deeper and challenge the reader and listener a little just a little bit more I think um to to really connect with um I think the what could have beens although they're they're present in in uh, the day book but I think unbound um it, you know Lee is not not that the day book was afraid of anything fear a fearless text but I think unbound really does uh push push the limits of sort of a, a deeper analysis and in some ways um a more uh I think a more melancholy one which which is not bad I yeah. agree with you especially when you get to the end of the series toward the end of the series and mm-hmm. um the the ending of the 1840 yeah. storyline with and what happens with Barnabas and Angelique and you can really feel I almost felt like you were like in tears writing that Patrick mm-hmm. honestly like when I was reading it I was like wow this is very impactful I can got the feels yeah. reading that episode 1198 as Barnabas embarks on a determined mission of cross-dimensional bloodlust is he the victim of a larger trap Barnabas Collins Jonathan Frid repeat 30 minutes Shot by Lamar Trask, Angelique dies in the arms of Barnabas, not hearing him proclaim his love. Savage in his response, Barnabas chases and stabs Trask, who finds himself trapped and dying in parallel time. Emotionally decimated, Barnabas returns to the present with Julia and Stokes to find that they have successfully altered the timeline for the better. Meanwhile, Letitia Fay and Desmond catch a brief glimpse of parallel time, where Julia Collins discovers Trask's body. 1,198 is a dangerous episode. As the resolution of the primary series, it trolls fans as much as it fulfills their desires. There is no 11th hour return of Catherine Lee Scott. There is no tearful reunion with Josette. Instead, Barnabas discovers happiness in the arms of a one-time enemy. 
As the program does what it can with what it has, it shocks more than satisfies. Seen now, it also divides viewers like few other decisions made over its run. Do we see Barnabas discovering his authentic love for Angelique, or merely convincing himself that the only game in town is what he always wanted? Is the series putting viewers in the same position? Are fans of the Barnabas-Angelique romance responding to something illuminating in the text, or are they just making the best with what they have, convincing themselves it's what they wanted all along? Are you on Team Angelique or Team Josette? It might depend on when you saw it. For millions of viewers over several decades, the climactic twist of Barnabas's true romantic direction is something they saw only once, or never saw at all. Without VHS, DVD, or frequently cycled reruns, his real love is more of a rumor or fever dream than a fondly remembered highlight of the series. Until the mid-aughts, there was no way to review the moment, nor scour any of the series for clues. A good thing, because there were no clues. The writers were making it up as they went along. And if they had known that Barnabas's true love was Angelique, they would have telegraphed it years before. Of course, the show might have benefited from this, but the fact that they can't even hint at his unrealized love makes it more of a surprise, and it makes the whole argument irrelevant. In 2021, Dark Shadows exists as a complete entity. The details of its authorship are just those, details. This is the reality of Barnabas Collins, because it's now part of a finished work. The answer to the Josette versus Angelique question may not be so clear-cut as just choosing one over the other. I used to think of Angelique as the hero because of her 11th-hour transformation and the tremendous sacrifices she makes along the way. But upon this viewing, I was struck by a possibility I had never considered before. As a director, something I always tell actors is that any character, at any point, may not be telling the truth. Even if the author makes it appear as if they are, they might not be. So, in terms of her grand transformation, what if Angelique is making it all up? Or some of it up? After all, she's always been perfectly happy to use her powers to influence Barnabas's decisions. How he came about loving her was always less relevant than the fact that he simply did. No love spells on him. She simply mastered the fine art of influence. First off, threats to family. That's in 1795. Then, threats to him. That's in 1968. In 1897, maybe jealousy over Quentin? But in the end, none of those things worked, did they? Not like making yourself the hero against your past villainy, wiping out a larger threat, and then creating loyalty by curing your own curse. Has Barnabas been manipulated by a vast disinformation campaign? I say this because his decision is ultimately swayed by, yes, the involvement of witchcraft, years after her initial efforts. If it's ineffective to use your occult powers, simply impress everyone by removing them. One way or the other, you're still exploiting the occult. One way or the other, you would never be in the position you are if it were not for witchcraft. Clever. And, strangely, zen. Take the implications to episodes that never happened. We have no evidence that she's really given up her powers. It's not like there's a butterball pop-up timer we can check. If she can suddenly cure a near-incurable curse, she can make her abilities appear and vanish at will. Faking her own death is the longest but strongest game possible. 
Had the 1971 primary time storyline happened, it might very well have seen Barnabas exploring the timeline in pursuit of Angelique. At last, she would be desired and sought on a level to rival Josette. At last, he would have her right where she wants him. That's just an interpretation. Just a what-if, true believers. Yes, a bleakly cynical one of multi-level manipulation, but you've met Angelique, right? Yeah. Maybe that's just preferable to the idea that she's gone. This episode was broadcast January 27th, 1971. Yeah. Did I ever tell you what happened when I was doing the watch through that marathon 2012 watch through? When, when it ended? When it ended? Yeah, you yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Or? Well, was that, is that something we talked about privately or is it something we talked I about? Don't, I, 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 can't I don't want to. I don't want to take up airtime. I think you did in the very the first episode we did on the day first day book. You might have, but if you want to, it's fine. You know what's well. I mean, it just. I I went to bed that night, um, and it was structured so that we had the death of Angelique, mm -hmm. and then the last day. It was sort of shows comparatively how brief it was. It was all eighteen forty one parallel time. Boom, the whole thing's over. And so I had gone. This was at the end of day forty four of forty five of these things, you know, 10 hours a day, often with a lot of uh, technical problems, which you wouldn't imagine. But I mean, I killed a couple of Blu-ray players and, you wow. know, including an oppo, which if you're a movie snob, that means a lot. Uh, it was like a crime to kill an oppo, but um, yeah. And so I, uh, I had some friends come over, you know, this is death of Angelique thing, not to celebrate or anything, but just to make sure I was okay. And I think, yeah, of course I'm fine. And, uh, and I went to bed and I was in bed for about 30 seconds. And I had this weird thought. I thought, huh, I wonder what Barnabas is doing right now. You know, <laughs> because you're sort of thinking of the show in real time because you're coexisting with it for your waking yeah. day. Right. And, and I thought, well, he's, he's back. And I just lost it. I had had no real, other than chuckling and, you know, misting up occasionally or whatever. Uh, I had, had no real emotional uh, attachment to what was going on. So I thought. Hmm. And uh, and then, you know, I guess the, the lighter side of Stockholm Syndrome came to play. And uh, uh, I had really begun to identify with my captor. It was Barnabas. And <laughs> I, I lost it. Yeah. I really lost it. And I recorded uh, a piece about it that never made it anywhere. Um, but I remember saying, you know, it's okay for TV shows to be tough on their main characters. It felt just almost needlessly cruel. But that's the poetic beauty of it. It's like the end of Cyrano de Bergerac, which is the greatest and most horrible ending ever written. And horrible, I say, in a respectful way. Um, that it's just the the size of the pain that it conjures up. It almost it's almost as if it conjures up pain that size, so we don't have to feel it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that was uh, that. What, what does this tie into? What on earth? How did I get into this? Where am I? Who are these? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's fascinating. Um, I've said it many times. Dark shadows rarely you rarely have happy endings on dark shadows. Eighteen forty one parallel time. Exception, mm -hmm. I guess, and you Desmond yeah. and uh, Letitia, I guess you have a, you have a few here and there, but usually they, you're right. I mean, it, it's... even with a hand like Patofi's, there will be no happy. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Uh, one line I remember, I loved reading about Patofi. Actually, that comes to mind. You said something to the effect of uh, coming into the present, and I think it was during the Leviathan. So you were like, 
they, well, you know, they could have done something like bring back Count Potofi, but who wants to see that except for everybody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, except for everyone. And I like, can't yeah, believe they never did that. It's like, what? Why? Yeah, instead, let's make a feature film with Barnabas as the bad guy and then kill him. <laughs> That'll be great for the franchise. But it, is Barnabas dead in one of the earliest post-credit scenes in the cinema? Bat. The bat. Hey, the he bat. missed the heart. Jeff Clark missed the heart. Well, it's he Jeff grazed Clark. it. He grazed it. Yeah, it's Jeff Clark. Don't, I mean, don't, don't let leave Roger Davis with sharp objects in his hand. That's that's the message. Um, so Just sharp witticisms and observations. Indeed, Roger, indeed. Yes, and I will at some point. I will. I would love to have Roger Davis on the podcast. I, at some point. I say lots of nice things about Roger Davis in this. You do I actually say about Roger Davis. You do say a lot of nice things about Roger Davis, which is not you don't see that very often. Um, it's. I mean, you you actually pay tribute to him. He was writing a book, wasn't he? Is Liz, this book is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and um, his architecture is wonderful, and I think his acting brought a lot to the show. I didn't know that there was kind of like a thing in certain segments of the Dark Shadows fan community that is not necessarily Davisian in its friendliness, until I found myself in the very first podcast I ever did. And um and and I was they were kind of ganging up on on Mr. Davis. And I sort of was like, ah, okay. And you know what? Of all of my regrets in all of being in Dark Shadows fandom, I could roll them all up just into one. And it's not saying just I like Roger Davis. Roger Davis may be the most controversial personality associated with the show. He had a reputation for cutting up on the set. Some people liked that. Dan Curtis was a fan. Some did not like that. Well, this is America, though. He was very different from the other men on the program. He had a different look. He had a different energy. He's the tonic to their gin. And he's from my hometown, which immediately puts me in his corner. I grew up in the shadow of his building projects. In fact, that's how I first knew of him. He rebuilt the hotel where Tom and Daisy got married, so says the great Gatsby. He was the second Dark Shadows cast member I ever met. I was 16, and he was just a fireball of friendly. I mean, he stood there and talked to me like I was his long-lost nephew. It felt effortless. The next time I saw Roger Davis, it was at the very end of the 50th anniversary convention. He alluded to the fact that he was not feeling particularly warmed by love from the event. Maybe he had earned it. Maybe he was the victim of misperception. Maybe it was about stuff that took place 50 years ago. There was a lot he didn't say, but he didn't have to. There was an emotion there that I understood. There was weariness. There was a sense of loss. There was some muted anger. None of it would be resolved. These dark moments are familiar to most funny people, and he's a funny guy. I know that my own jocular nature can get on people's nerves. It's a defensive move that covers profound insecurity. Hint, if someone is cracking jokes around you, take a look in a mirror, because you're probably scaring them. Despite the bad day, he was kind. This continued over the years. As I mentioned in the last book, he read one of my essays and liked it enough that Colonel Tom Hotz arranged a phone call. Roger was very positive about the piece, and he was very specific. Hearing that exactitude of response is a prized rarity. And then he called me, out of the blue, two years later, and held court with edgy affection. Profoundly funny. 
emotionally generous, totally honest. He's working on a book right now that is somewhere between a novel and a memoir. He read a section that was witty, poignant, and marvelously balanced. Like all artists, he's a complex man, writer, actor, architect. Like all of his castmates, there's a lot to admire. One thing I love too about the day, I texted you about it earlier this week. I love that you're, you are irreverent, but in the right way. It's, you have fun with it, but you are respectful of the actors um, and, and, and the characters too. You never say, oh, this guy sucks. You know, you never say things like that. You know, you're no. always kind of like with the, you always find something, even if you're, maybe it's not your favorite, you always seem to find the silver line and you find something nice to say, which is, I appreciate because I, I mean, with this podcast, I'm celebrating dark shadows. I'm not here to like make fun of dark shadows. Yeah. Bloopers. Okay. Big deal. You know, it, it was practically live, live to tape. I can always find something to love in every dark shadow storyline. And with all those characters too, they're fun. To, to be a Dark Shadows fan means to to be. Uh, I, I'm gonna go for it. I'm just gonna go, go for, for it. it. Yeah. It's to be persecuted, and uh, <laughs> just as just as in the dating world, I've been abandoned by my own socioeconomic class. In the <laughs> world, I love that. It sounds like a line out of a Woody Allen movie. Uh, uh, in in the fan world, to be a Dark Shadows fan in the eyes of many of these creeps means to occupy like the lowest, most obscure, as like furries get more respect. And um, and I, I, I genuinely have seen that again and again in the fan world, um, that at best we're sort of like, oh, you're into that. Well, I suppose someone needs to be. And and they can be real, really goofy. And so, so to be a Dark Shadows fan means that you're already standing up for something that is wildly misunderstood or just not, people don't give the time to understand it properly, I think, in a lot of cases. And um, so, you know, I, as a fan in the Dark Shadows world and in the, in the larger fan world, I face enough persecution as it is. I mean, I'm using that term a little yeah. broadly. It's not real persecution, but but you know what I mean. So the last thing I really want to do is turn around to other Dark Shadows fans and tell them that because every song is somebody's favorite song, mm -hmm. and to tell a Dark Shadows fan that well, this thing that you like isn't really good enough. I mean, no, am I crazy about the part of the series before Barnabas shows up? I want to talk about I'm, a little bit about that too, actually. I'm not, I'm not as crazy about it as I am about other things, but it is certainly part of the family tree of what I love. And so, you know, of course I love it and, and, and I stand up for it and I'm happy to have it out there. And so, so yeah, I, there, I mean, there are times when I thought I could say something catty about this storyline or that storyline or whatever. And I thought, no, no, because so, there's someone out there who really loves this and they read the column every day because at least it's something about dark shadows. And I don't want them to pick it up and see something that's crapping on something they like. I want I want to try and find my way of phrasing what I like about it and what maybe they like about it, too. That's very important to me. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly appreciated. I think that's the right way to approach it. I like that. Um but with that said, with the with the humor, um, uh, uh, Mary, you really kind of picked up on the 
impact. I mean, I assume that also comes from having known him for so long that you can kind of, you get his sense of humor and you mm-hmm. deliver the lines in such a mm-hmm. way that are, you really kind of capture that style. I, I imagine as someone like before we started recording, Patrick's been pickled in dark shadows uh, mm-hmm. for a long time and you're, I mean, you haven't seen it. Um, I wonder if after watching it, if you do end up watching it, if mm-hmm. or if Patrick ever does another day book, if that will inform your, also your reading of it, like, will that knowledge of base or having experienced it, will that inform your reading of it as well? I wonder. Mm. I wonder, I wonder, I almost, um, because I think we would have come to maybe a few interesting impasses of maybe I would have had a different point of view on trying to connect various storylines or interpretations um, and would have taken a different tonal approach than the one that's um, in the day book, because that's another wonderful element is that there are so many points of view and true interpretations. And it's not just recapping. I mean, it's it's really um, arguing in a delightful way. Um, and and I think that uh, that that would be an interesting element too to see what the uh, you know if I've started to hop at the jar and get a little brine going of my own um, in the dark shadows universe, see what happens. I don't yeah. know. Well, you know, and Mary uh, very well could be writer. Oh. You know, you, you sure, uh, you know, I mean, I'm all alone, you know, kind of to be Dark Shadows, a uh, Dark Shadows fan means to often work furtively in the dark, <laughs> you know, I can't delight during a thunderstorm <laughs> who's going to talk to you about this stuff. And so, you know, I mean, I, you have such integrity and and so it's sort of like if if you figured out something about the show Mm -hmm. that I had not seen, and if you put some pieces of evidence together that I had not seen, um, thank you. Because then that makes my, my view of the series clearer. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if someone with integrity uh, does that, great. Mm -hmm. That's, that's fantastic. You know, I mean, it's, it's like any kind of science in that you're taking, you're taking significant elements of evidence and, you know, you're trying to find a unifying principle out of it. And so if you find more stuff to give us a better unifying principle, go for it. I want to read the Mary Johnson day book. I'll read it. <laughs> okay. You can, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> by Mary Johnson, read by Patrick McCray. There, oh, up. there we go. There we go. I would, be, I would be proud for you to be writer than well, me about well, stuff. Well, thank you. Was, you could have a debate, like an argument, a day oh, book where you both keep, debate each other, counterpoint. I would just keep complimenting her. Point, That's all I want. <laughs> Patrick, you just did the Mad Monster Con. Is that what it was called? Mad Monster Con. Yeah, Mad in, Monster. In North Carolina. Um, yeah. And you were there with Catherine Lee Scott, too, at the I test. Was. That's I it. Was. I saw it. was a great picture I saw on uh, on Facebook of uh, the two of you at the table with the day books out on the table and everything. Uh, what was that experience like? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? It was great. Yeah. It was it was terrific. Uh, you know, I mean, I uh, I, p- I picked her up at the airport. Mm-hmm. I was very nervous about getting there on time. <laughs> Uh, put a lot of work into detailing the truck. You know, honestly, this <laughs> is the stuff that was the Catherine Lee Scott experience. Uh, we went to Salisbury, North Carolina, where Ben Martin was from. And and so we visited Ben's childhood home. And that was great. I took some pictures of that. And and the owners knew I was taking pictures, too. I just want to get that out there. Um, I didn't go back in the middle of the night and like, you know, <laughs> that they know of. 
Uh, so we went to Mad Montrecon. Uh, the fabulous Patrick was there, meaning her 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 fella, Patrick oh. Oster, who is a uh, a thriller writer. Oh, okay. And uh, and and uh, just a hilarious guy. And uh, so since we were both Patrick, I was Bald Eagle, and he was Silver Fox. <laughs> we had to have code names to tell us about. <laughs> and uh, and so the con itself was was just fantastic uh there was thank thank goodness there was one woman dressed like josette i saw the picture yeah i did see that yeah it was like oh thank god yeah um and uh and it was uh of of what i think of as a a more lightsaber than blaster era uh catherine was she was it and um and and no better representative. Uh, she was she was wonderfully generous. She she was a lot of fun. Again, very funny person. One of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Um, just with very wry asides <laughs> um, and extremely extremely observant um, uh, humor. Just uh, just a terrific person to to deal with. I know I sound like Sammy Davis Jr. is kind of obsequiously going on and on, but it's but it's true um and um and it it was it was a great experience uh to be appreciated for something you're proud of you're really proud of i mean i'm proud of everything i do of course but this is something that you know all of my art previously has been very collaborative you know, and you're sort of leading a collaboration. The cast gets its 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 recognition and you necessarily recede into the background. You know, if they want to come to rehearsal and watch me block and tell me how entertaining it was, that's fine. But a performance is about the actors. And so on opening nights, I don't really go down into the house or things like that because I didn't do anything. They did. But this, I did something, you know, that's like right there. And um, that was a a a big a big experience i hadn't really had that before and so that was that was outstanding yeah and it's uh it's validating too for your work but also just uh in general dark shadows in general like having catherine there which i mean she's done way more than just dark shadows but um but that having the day book at the table with catherine lee scott what that's really cool that must have been an amazing feeling it was it was such an incredible feeling of validation and being home. And of course, you know, I've I've worked for Catherine since 2014. Mm-hmm. So that's a long, that's about 10 year collaboration. And um and and this was this was great. She's been very supportive. Um, she's been a great, great voice of wisdom and kindness and fun and insight. She's generally and genuinely um one of the very finest people I know. She's in every regard. She's everything you would want this person to be. And 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 much more. As much of a cliche as that sounds, it's true. Yeah. She uh she was kind enough to uh come onto the podcast. It's almost been two years now. I gotta invite her back on at some point. But she uh yeah, I had a blast. Uh, it was her and Ansel Farage and Richard Halpern and where we talked about uh, was to promote the uh Dark Shadows Christmas Carol uh event oh, that the Dark Shadows wow. cast did. Yeah, so, the yeah. graphics did that. 
Oh, the, yes, that's right. The yeah. Poster in the yeah. yeah. Yes, that was a yeah, that was a cool poster. Um, and it was just such a great event. I hope they they do more of those someday. But it was a blast having yeah. her on and just kind of almost surreal too, <laughs> having been a lifelong fan of, of the show. Like, oh my gosh, Catherine Lee Scott. I was a little, a little, a little nervous. <laughs> but she was did sweet. See, she was very sweet. Did you see Gift of the Magi? Um the Oh, she did with David Selby. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was I great too. That. And we had we, oh, had, a, we wow. had a good time with that. So yeah, mm-hmm. so I hope I hope we get to do more. That was yeah. that was a great experience. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I, I hope hopefully there'll be more of those uh those events. Um, because uh, the fans love seeing the cast get together again to do something. Um, seeing them together performing or uh, you know, the Q and A's are great too, but it's like seeing them do their thing they're actors you know you want to see them play roles you know and together and it's 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 great you know i say that in the christmas carol review Mm -hmm. which is in which is in the back that you know it lets us see dark shadows as dark shadows fans we get to see what we want to see which is them playing more things yeah yeah exactly um i can only imagine if dan because dan curtis as you know you know had planned at one point we had the idea of doing like a special christmas carol uh special on uh, event on television with the dark shadows cast and that i i mean it's kind of like they did it you know you you and you were involved in that too it, it happened so that, that was pretty yeah. exciting a christmas carol 2021 with the dark shadows ensemble there are times when an idea moves beyond the intention and becomes an unexpected wonder Dark Shadows fans enjoyed just that in Richard Halpern and Ansel Farage's recent Zoom production of A Christmas Carol, which aired on December 19th. Not only did the producers bring us an adaptation of Orson Welles' radio play, but David Hennessy and Alexandra Moltke-Isles returned to join the ensemble. You probably know that. You probably also know that their return should have been the story. If it had been limited to that, it would have been a successful moment in history, but a failure as a drama. And there is not one unsuccessful second in this production. At its very marrow, this production of A Christmas Carol is the most artistically successful follow-up to Dark Shadows since the show went off the air. The budget was not vast, but that doesn't matter. Did it ever? Because fans of the show don't necessarily want more Dark Shadows from our Dark Shadows. We want more of the ensemble, and we want to see them given the chance to show us and the world why we love them. This was that opportunity. The script is a strong and economical distillation of the story, supporting the actors, yet staying out of their way. I can't necessarily say that for other Dark Shadows productions. And while it's not a Dark Shadows production, it is, resoundingly. As wacky and perfunctory as the project could have been, it manages, above all else, to be tasteful in its risks, with everyone participating. It's improvised and compromised around the edges. And that lets us see what the actors bring to the execution via quirky and personal contributions. From wonky top hats, cozy scarves, and appropriately fire engine red reading glasses, to David Selby's tireless tuxedo, the visual world of this show intersects immediacy and literacy, and, most prized of all, fun. I mean, there is an inherent ridiculousness to any production via Zoom. It's hard to bring James Tyrone to life if it looks like Peter Brady is about to appear in the square next door to announce that his voice has changed. But that kind of visual language is used with discretion and strategy by Ansel Farage. 
He trades out widescreen oomph for spectacle that works on a more resonant and emotional level. That becomes clear when Mitch Ryan delivers the touching and spare epilogue. His adoring cast members look on with professional satisfaction and affectionate gratitude for the chance to hear him have the final word. And it's just as moving for us. Of course, the impossible luck of seeing this ensemble assembled is going to put any audience of fans in the right mood. Yes, that's especially true in a year where, I believe, we have lost more cast members than I'm comfortable counting. Everyone is both having fun and bringing their A-game, with about as much prep time as we're used to seeing them have on the original show. This was not an easy presentation to pull together with little notice, but its success is a minor miracle. It's what happens when determined professionals get to do what they do best. The result is a production that, although brief, connects us with the emotional realities of the actual text, serving up sobering truths about aging, regret, and envy with equal measures of believably earned hope. And there is esprit de corps and an intense sense of teamwork. But at a certain point, someone has to be Scrooge and stand out even further. So, David Selby. In a performance that should define the most extraordinary horizons of what quarantine theater can be, Selby is somehow able to capture true theatrical size with these cerebral nuances afforded by the intimacy of the webcam. In the midst of nothing but technology, David Selby delivers nothing but humanity. I kept waiting for his bah humbug and other trademark phrases, eager to hear his unique spin on them. Well, there was no spin. I was seeing Ebenezer Scrooge making a point to other characters, rather than a self-conscious actor trying to top earlier Ebenezers. David Selby is a fine writer who represents the author, not himself. I suspect that we are seeing the performance he would want from actors in one of his own productions. As the production unfolds, we see a character desperate to hide the pain he associates with lost loves and friendships. This is ostensibly a play about the unfair privilege of class differences. Here, I sense a parallel story. The unfair privilege of relationship differences. Scrooge, having earned it, wears his alienation with the pride of a man sure of nothing else. Selby Scrooge feels wisely reversed-engineered from the middle of the play, outward, in either direction. The relatable sadness of his miscalculations and deviations from the Fezziwig standard chain him as much as the weights encumbering Jacob Marley. As a character haunted by Marley's Christmas-time passing, long before any literal ghosts appear, Selby takes great care to believably connect with the details of Ebenezer's past. With nothing but his face and voice, he brings us the depth of Dickens with a rare purity as Scrooge is reintroduced to everything he's lost. When Scrooge finally exults in perhaps the most heartfelt Merry Christmas I may have ever heard, I felt like I was seeing a man finally given permission to forgive himself. Scrooge connects with a world ever ready to offer second chances. And if anything makes this a Dark Shadows production, it's that. Again and again, that's the message of the show, and that's the message that we see here. Partly because of our connection with the work of these actors over decades, the show was emotionally exhausting, yet was never overwrought. Honesty may not always be pretty, but if it is explored with range and sympathy, it is inevitably the most satisfying part of a ritual like this. Back to context. Rarely, if ever, does a franchise give its loyal audience a gift of this much heart and finesse. I don't know if we will see the ensemble assembled like this once more. I think everyone is aware of that danger. 
Like the story itself, this was an opportunity to express a simple truth. Moments to express respect, admiration, and love may never come again. Don't be stingy with them. James Storm is once again the reliable chameleon, embodying principled strength with compassionate eloquence. Jerry Lacey conjures up a Marley with precisely the grim relish to catalyze the journey. David Hennessy has lost none of his ability to nail every single line with impudent sincerity. Nancy Barrett completely erased any sadness I might have at her absence from the screen by reassuring me that her spark and wit are still screen-ready for the producer smart enough to cast her. Marie Wallace brought her native warmth and sense of life with every bit of the immediacy we enjoyed in 1968 and 1969. Yes, well, the story is a bit of a boys' club. Nonetheless, Laura Parker elicits the nimble delicacy of the language with naturally cerebral verve. Catherine Lee Scott mixes a sense of ethical sincerity with the hint of sardonic mischief that is her laudable trademark. Leave it to accomplished authors to know exactly how to handle language of mirth and strength. Alexandra Moltke-Isles could have coasted on novelty, but she doesn't. There is a dark and intense forthrightness to her presence, and I'm too busy watching her character to be distracted by the rare and long-awaited return of their actor. It took a long time for us to see more of the range she wanted to explore on the program. It was worth it. Finally, Mitch Ryan inaugurates and resolves the story with an easy, reserved gravitas of reassuring authority. It takes the brightest of actors to observe the action with an improbably passionate neutrality. Mitch Ryan was and is that bright actor. When the Dark Shadows universe, a thing extending far beyond the actual production of the show, said goodbye to Ryan, Moltke Isles, and Hennessy, a critical balance was lost. Thanks to this production, this can now be seen as only momentary. Dark Shadows is about home, often for those without one. Watching this made me feel as if the doors to Collinwood were open again. 2020 and 2021 took more from us than we deserved. This gesture, at this time, is an essential reminder of what we still have. Too often, the love of a franchise reveals itself in the desperate acquisition of props and autographs and photos and handshakes, all of which are noble, but all of which distract us from the real reasons why we love the people who brought it to life. Richard Halpern and Ansel Farage take full advantage of this rare opportunity to see them doing what we love most, acting. They have not only given this ensemble yet another great story to tell together, but they have given us the opportunity and intimacy to share it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, themes uh, in Dark Shadows as we head toward the end of this uh, great uh, discussion with the two of you. Themes in Dark Shadows. Um, what are, I guess, having Patrick, having uh, watched the show in such a condensed form, you described it as being kind of in outer space and looking at, looking at the earth from outer space, you know, and seeing mm -hmm. it all in one uh, one shot here. And you've you dove into it and wrote these these uh, essays about different episodes. Um, and Mary, you've read mm -hmm. through the through the lens of uh, McCray here uh, mm -hmm. these all of these entries. Uh, you mentioned a couple of the themes in passing there, Mary. So I'd like to hear from both mm -hmm. of you. Like, what are your kind of overall thoughts on the themes of Dark Shadows? Beyond the cool, you know, okay, vampires and werewolves and ghosts or whatever but there there are some there's a lot of meaning in dark shadows and you pulled a lot of that out and explored it so that's that was wonderful so talk a little bit about that 
Good. I would say I'll start broad. Um, I think, you know, the notion of the undead, um, of course, is thematically relevant here when we come to our protagonist and others. But I think that idea of what does not die, whether it's love, whether it's revenge, whatever it is, and sort of what persists and what it means to let something die and let something live. I think mm -hmm. that that could that could be one thesis. Okay, great. Patrick. Uh, you know, it 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 keeps changing. Um because there's so much of it. There's so much of this show to kind of wade through and and there's a lot going on, but I I like to look at beginnings and endings and I keep going back to the first episode and the last episode. <laughs> and the thing that I see is this relationship that establishment culture has with the other. Mm, yes. Because, you know, the Collinses build a fortress of self-congratulation and the very nature of a fortress is not just to say, hey, let's celebrate all our cool stuff, but it's to say, keep out. Yeah. And, and if you notice, that's not a strategy that works. They are, a, you know, I mean, they're a seafaring family. They, they, they naturally are about new things. And when they built their legend, they were about new things. And then, you know, in, in Joshua's desire to appear respectable, he, uh, he builds a fortress so that everything can be exactly the set of new things that he had at one point and nothing else. Uh, he builds Collinwood, and of course, it becomes this temple of shame where everyone dies. And um, and so, what are you dealing with? Well, for one thing, I don't think any of the writers sat around jotting any of this stuff down. Okay, mm -hmm. they weren't planning this; it just was in the background. So, if you look at the writing staff, you have people who are dealing with upper echelons of New York society, but they are among them, but they're not of them. And what do they see in the late 1960s, mid to late 1960s? They see uh, civil rights and they see the role of women in society as being, you know, people. And that that their definition of what the table is and who is at the table, the, you know, the Rockefellers and so on, you know, this high, highest echelons of New York society is crumbling. It's going away. And and this idea of of uh, of white aristocracy in America, white male aristocracy, is going away, and and that if the other is is not just no longer called the other, I mean that's that's an immediate problem right there. But if the other is not recognized as the source of um, sanity and wisdom and the future, then they are inherently going to fall apart because they just become a big echo chamber. And so to the Collinses, what do they do? Well, when they're smart, they bring in the other and they let the other be a, a voice of objectivity and a voice of sanity. It starts out with Liz bringing in Vicky, but even at the end of the series, instead of just keeping the same dance over and over again with, uh, with you know the lottery room, what happens? Well, they change the dance. It's two others, Bromwell, yeah. who's not really an insider Collins, and Catherine, who go into the room 
for the first time as a as a duo. And there again is this balloon. What's like what's going don't on? Know, but they're real happy about celebration. That it's a celebration and, of the lottery. And they do and they do celebrate. Yeah. So uh and they do triumph. And so this idea of a lone aristocracy trying to get through it is not going to cut it. Yeah. That American ideal of the rugged individualist and so on. Yeah, forget it. Yeah. Um, we, we survive by uh, by drawing from each other, by embracing the other, by knitting with the other. Yes. Yeah. And and so, you know, on Dark Shadows, it starts out every bloody time there's something else, there's a creature or whatever. Um, what happens? But uh, the, the creature wants to be like everyone else. Yeah. Yep. And what ends up happening, they save everyone else's behind. And the creature is able to love as well as capable of feeling, which is can be oh, yeah. the downfall of many of the characters, but it also ends up redeeming many of, of the characters. It leads to a, a redemption arc for many of those characters. So, sure. uh, yeah. Uh, and in many ways, I mean, uh, you, nail, you, you, you called out a lot of things that are really key there. I think Dark Shadows both embodies the the gothic uh in that it is there is isolation there is uh alienation there is the past invading the present there is the other but it sub also at the same time subverts the gothic because it as you say it you it yeah they're they're isolated but it never works there is always some someone that comes in and 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 helps that them to get through the difficulties and to see things in different ways. And the other, I've called this out before on the podcast too, the other becomes the protagonist of the, they're the ones we follow. And that's why I think Dark Shadows resonates so strongly with people who are kind of outsiders and feel a little alienated and et cetera, for sure. Of course, of course. Yeah. And, and I mean, all you need to do is go to Seaview Terrace, mm -hmm. okay? And look at all of these houses. What's Seaview Terrace right next to the Breakers? Yeah. which I think is a Vanderbilt house. What are they both? They're both being rented out for other things. They are not these massive grand family mansions where everyone is, you know, kept outside like, uh, you know, uh, 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 Julie Andrews and Victor Victoria looking at the, you know, the tarts and things and the, you know, that, that they're not just isolated. Instead, uh, they're touring the place. That alone is a statement that American aristocracy is gothic as hell and was headed there in the late 1960s. I mean, it is the very definition of dying from within, which is mm -hmm. the whole nature of, of Gothic literature. Yeah, yep. Forgiveness, we talked about that uh, a little bit, but that's a, that's a big theme there. And for all of these characters who have done horrific things, including Barnabas, including Angelique, but you always find, you end up feeling for the Quentin, Julia even, I mean, well, Julia is not, same type of uh, she was complicit with the with the whole Woodard thing, but uh, and she was kind of self serving at first when she came into the show and manipulative, etc. But she's yes. all of them. You end up forgiving them or finding some uh, feeling empathy for them at some point, even though they're done monstrous things. All of them, you well, know. And a lot of it's about them learning to forgive themselves, mm -hmm. yeah, and forgive each other. A yep. very specific. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you call that out a lot too, especially with Barnabas and Angelique. And that's a beautiful, that is a beautiful 
uh, ending there for it's sad, it's heartbreaking, but it's also like Barnabas finally forgives Angelique. That's huge. And I heard that was Leela Swift's idea to to do that. I heard that. Uh, I don't know if that's sure, but a, a couple of people have told me that was a, a Leela Swift uh, idea. But yeah, who, for sure. Who's left to atone to? Right. right All right. of the people to atone to in 1795 are dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, the only person to forgive is yourself. Right. On that scale. Episode 1197, A Second Look. Guess what happens when the characters do all of the right things and suddenly have the prospect of happiness welcoming them with open arms? Miranda Duval, Laura Parker. Repeat our entire lives. Angelique interrupts the execution of Quentin and Desmond with the severed head of Judah Zachary. When its flesh dissolves with the death of Ivan Miller, even jaywalking tickets are forgiven by the judge. Unable to live with this outbreak of rampant justice and happiness, Lamar Trask shoots Angelique just before she can hear that Barnabas loves her. The end. Attention must be paid. So said the widow Loman at the grave for someone prized only for his insignificance. I have come back to these episodes more times than any other. This year, it feels irresponsible to devote more words to them. And yet, it feels irresponsible not to. A show the size of Dark Shadows is more than a television program. It is a companion. If you spent three hours on a hobby with a friend, twice a month, for six years, you develop an understandable bond. That stretch of time is how long it would take you to watch this story. It's a feast of a tale. Many times, in ways good and bad, it feels endless. The story accrues around the edges, in no more rush than the real lives it punctuates. 1967 is always fresh. 1968 is always a rich and intriguing core sample. 1969 is always better than we deserve. 1970 always pales by comparison, trawling for us to apologize for it. 1971 is always too short, a reminder of what it's like to still love something when everyone else stops. I remain unshaken in my assertion that Dark Shadows is the most realistic show on TV. It just kind of putters around threatening to do something significant, and then just kind of usually not. Most of the news is bad. We get used to it. And then someone is shot and killed. I'm not being glib when I say that. No, not every tragedy is a sudden and fatal gunshot wound. But I guarantee you that there is someone out there listening to this who has lost someone precious precisely that way. And that's how this episode ends. The most famous quote about television is that the medium is the message. In other words, the means by which we consume art is as significant a statement as the art being exhibited. Dark Shadows is many things that it had no intention of being. Newsflash, this goes for all art. Like all art, however, it is a teacher above all else. Primarily, it teaches us to look at ourselves from a completely different point of view. But if you watch the entire show, the very storytelling itself is the most significant message. Maybe more than one. The most immediate one is, in the words of Fullcroft Sanitarium director, Dr. Harold W. Smith, thou shalt not get away with it. The assassination of Angelique is a convenience. The actors want to move to a fresh storyline. The writers are probably hoping that new characters will give them new ideas. And the ritual of storytelling inevitably veers toward drab moralizing. In this modern world, Dominated by an antediluvian ethos, we certainly hear a lot about forgiveness. 
And at the same time, we also live in a culture that absolutely revels in just desserts. We love forgiveness because it makes Oprah happy. It's what we are supposed to do because somehow it will liberate us. It will certainly liberate the people in our lives who are sick of hearing us complain about something. It's vaguely godlike, so I guess it's got that going for it. But is it just me? Or does a lot of the forgiveness we hear about seem to have its fingers crossed behind its back? Why? We just can't stand the idea of someone getting away with it. Any of it. And because we can't make up our minds which of these things, beatific forgiveness or righteous punishment, we will fetishize more, we look to fiction to give us both at the same time. And who has to pay the tab? Angelique. So of course, Trask has to plug her. The fat-headed, arbitrary rules of the ritual that is fiction decree it to be so. There are plenty of Dark Shadows fans who love to sweep in at this point with a list of all of the horrible things Angelique has done. And I guess this helps? But I hope you have a list of all the rotten things Barnabas has done because he's just as deserving of the naughty step. And he pays, also. He pays an ongoing price too terrible for the show to make us watch. And culture smiles on us for having it both ways. We applaud their 11th hour moral reversals, safe in the irony that they are being punished anyway. Extra, extra, read all about it. The one thing these characters learn is that the past belongs in the past. All we have is the present. All we have are the decisions we are making right now. I spend 90% of my day apologizing for what I say, the other 10%. And when someone is really going to town on me, I gently remind them that it won't build a time staircase to allow me to make different decisions in the past. The saddest part about episode 1197 is that the present is the one thing these characters are denied. That's nothing to feel good about. That's nothing to applaud. And perhaps it's nothing to applaud in our art. Perhaps that's the message we should actually be taking away. When significance erupts in the mundanity of our everyday lives, it is shockingly sudden. There's no taking it back. And then the show ends. There's no montage. There's not even a funeral at which Barnabas can insist that attention must be paid. If you're going to forgive, mean it. Move on. Do it in the name of the future that Angelique and Barnabas never got. It became a ritual to write about this final episode of Dark Shadows. And by that, I mean the dark shadows of the main storyline, not 1841 parallel time. A soap opera is one huge, sustained cliffhanger. And if you spend 450 hours hanging off of a cliff, it's important to study what happens when you finally go over. As I compare this version with other essays I've written about the end of the series, I'm struck by the fact that it's less sentimental than my earlier takes, rather than more. One thing also I want to say, you also pointed out something about Vicky that I love too. Uh, I'm going to read it actually. I think I have bookmarked it because I was, I thought it was a great, uh, great line here. Um, but Victoria is a self-perpetuating, perpetuating cliche summed up in, I just don't understand. This is judged too hastily. We only understand things that she doesn't because we are watching Dark Shadows at 4.30 and she's too busy doing her job to waste a half hour in front of the tube when David has an Esperanto <laughs> test to pass. 
so we hear the private conversations that she never does. Maybe she doesn't understand things because they are genuinely incomprehensible to her. They are just as incomprehensible to her as they would be to us. That's an excellent point. Uh, people always kind of pick on Vicky because she always said that that's her kind of her catchphrase. I don't understand, but you're right. I mean, she's she's in, a, in the show as the show becomes progressively more and more bananas and supernatural and all this stuff is going on around her and she gets whisked into the past during a seance. Like, I mean, of course she doesn't understand. Would you, would you understand? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, Hell's Kitchen Teachers College did not cover any (laughs) of these things. You know, she can handle a good declension. And then beyond that, Ah, she knows she, you know, that's no, that's not going to happen. And neither would we. We can only kind of lord it over Vicky because we've seen all the scenes that she hasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, (laughs) She might have, she might look like she has trouble with, you know, straightening out rope that's not (laughs) knotted or or dropping pennies. But, but, you know, ultimately, this is unfair. Yeah, Yeah, she's quite right. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Vicky, if you do a third Dark Shadows Day book, I will request some pre-Barnabas and some 1841 parallel time stuff. Because there's a lot of 1841. There is. Yeah, that's true. You do, do talk about you do talk about a new chapter that's not in the the Kindle version. Oh. There's a whole chapter devoted to 1841 parallel time. And the audio version? No, in in the audio version and in that version, which is in your 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 uh, yeah, there is a, a section on eighteen forty one parallel time, but it you like said, the, but you there it but there isn't a, any episode that you like put them all in the first book, and so oh okay, I put them okay. all in the first book, and okay. so I had to devote a whole thing to it. You know, okay. Jewel, uh, Jewel Sane, uh, by order of the court, made me do every episode of eighteen forty one. Oh, that's true. Yes, you did. You time. did. Yeah. And so walking out of that, that's where I got, that's where I figured out the show for the upteenth time. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then yes. I, I will request, even though I know it's uh, your favorite more. pre, pre bar I want to see, you did one pre Barnabas here, but no, I, I want to see. Let me ask. Two, two more. I request one Laura one and one um, Burke Devlin Vicky search for the. For the lobster. <laughs> For the lobster story, for search for Bill Malloy's lobster, pet lobster. <laughs> I was, I because I was going to ask for criteria. I mean, I don't, I don't dislike those episodes. It's just, you know, I'd love the werewolf in them also. Yeah, yes. Or, or, you know, Count Patofi to show up serving the lobster. <laughs> I'd, I'd like, to, I'd like to see the, the Patrick McRae analysis of some, some of those early ones that would I'd be, be happy. Cool. To, thank you. I've <laughs> never had a request. Yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. For the third day. So does that mean there will be a third day? day Dark Shadows Day book forever? Is it? There is. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, Dark Shadows Day book triumphant. Oh, uh, nice, yeah. nice, nice yeah. reference there. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. A little, little, uh, little uh, Joel Schumacher there. Yeah, yeah. Um, which we need more of. Dark Shadows Day book and Robin. There we go. Uh, I love it. There we go. <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, there is there is a there is a third book um there's yet more daybook stuff that hasn't been printed uh but it's gonna take a very different form and um it's gonna be very short it's Mm -hmm. gonna be about 150 pages at most okay 
Yeah. Are you ready to read it, Mary? <laughs> I well, we we shall see. Um, <laughs> I'm up for it. We'll see. We'll see what, cool. the, what form it takes. But but yes, I'll say I'll say yes. And okay. and <laughs> awesome, great. Good, good, that's good news, folks. So you heard you heard it here uh, first. Mm-hmm. So well, maybe not first, but you heard it here. Uh, so tell me, uh, where can we get the audio version and we have the soft cover version and the hardcover version of the day book. So you have the trifecta there. Uh, so where can we get all of these versions of the day book unbound? The uh, I have a, a phrase for the soft cover version that I won't use in public, but uh, but it's not insulting. It's just, you know, not polite for mixed company. <laughs> uh, the hardcover version uh, can be found in bookstores if you harass the owners. And I would love if you did um uh it is available in bookstores and it's available through amazon and i think other purveyors um the soft cover version is an amazon exclusive and then the um the audio books are available i think anywhere where you get audible audible products uh Mm -hmm. listening that goes with or reading that goes with you wherever you are uh, audible.com uh so eventually that's probably going to be an amazon exclusive also there's uh, there's a there's a thing i can't okay. i can't really say more than that okay. but if you if you want it on itunes get it soon okay all right um i i will put links uh in the show notes uh, uh absolutely and uh mary how about you um where, where can we find more of your work um and do you have a website or anything like that that you'd like to promote thank you i you know i don't yet but uh you know maybe by the time dark shadows triumphant comes along um but you i okay <laughs> there's a, <laughs> yeah. there is a web designer who works well, for there is a web designer who i think would would yeah. I, I think i've seen his work on katherineleescott.com yeah. um but uh <laughs> anyway um if you want to hear more uh, of my voice um i have worked for inner traditions audiobooks in the past um you can find me on grandmother ayahuasca if you're interested in a, a journey of a different kind um into dark shadows and others <laughs> Um, as well as the Kabbalah of writing and healing your ancestral roots. So some interesting offerings there, all available on uh, on Audible. But I would I I would recommend Grandmother Ayahuasca as your as your first stop um, on that particular trip. All right, fantastic, great. I will put a link uh, to the uh, uh, Audible da- uh, page for that. So absolutely. Um, and any closing thoughts that you either one of you want to drop? before we sign off thank you yes oh thank, thank you. you my it has been my pleasure uh chatting with the both of you uh it's always a blast talking to patrick and it's been great meeting you on um, mary as well so thank you very much for joining me here at terror at collinwood uh mm-hmm. folks uh be sure to pick up Dark Shadows Daybook, Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound. If you don't already have it, if you're listening to this, I'm I'm assuming you may already have it, but if not, uh, definitely pick it up. Yeah, check out the links in the show notes. Uh, Catherine Lee Scott, you mentioned we mentioned her a couple of times. She is doing an, a, an appearance uh, with Marie Wallace at Lindhurst on October 21st and 22nd, I believe. So, uh, you know, the festivals are, are no more. So this is kind of the next best thing is getting uh, to an, a, an event like this at Lindhurst, the house used for Collinwood and House of Dark Shadows, Night of Dark Shadows. 
you're going to have Catherine Lee Scott there and Marie Wallace uh, teaming up to do an appearance. So that sounds really cool. Um, and if you can make it, uh, definitely head on over to uh, Tarrytown, New York for that. And uh, folks, if you like this podcast, please do rate and review it. If you're watching the YouTube version of this, there is a video version of this. Please do uh, like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, this is all about uh, sharing the love for Dark Shadows, spreading the spreading the word to your friends. Uh, if you have friends who are Dark Shadows fans, let them know about the podcast because they might just dig it. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.